our consideration for this week is from Miles Stanford out of his book, The Complete Green Letters. And he talks about the problem of relevant evangelism. On a large scale, there are numerous Christian organizations and churches seeking to minister according to the theory of accommodation. Their method is to to descend to the level of those whom they attempt to reach in order to gain rapport and thus a response. This is a costly procedure. In utilizing the world's methods, music, dress, speech, and attitudes, the Christian is inevitably pulled down to the world's level instead of drawing the world to a spiritual level. The price paid is infinitely too high for what little is gained. And, you know, what do they say? They have a thing that they say, these young kids say today, <coughs> boom. <laughs> that, that he hits it, he nails it right on the head. And that's what's happening. Evangelism, it's almost like the evangelism is being prostituted today. I don't think we have to do that. We don't have to do that. God doesn't need all of this stuff that people are doing. He's very capable of reaching the people that he's going to reach. Very capable. He doesn't need us to lower things down to the world standards. And uh, boy, if, if believers understood that, it would make a huge difference. Our speaker today, it's the fifth Sunday, and uh, that means that it's time for Dan. <laughs> and so we're happy to have him speak to, for us today. Pastor, thank you. It's good to have our pastor and his wife back. <coughs> said on Facebook, I said, you guys better hurry and get back because there's nobody for the old folks to play with. (laughs) By the way, here's a question for you provoked by something your pastor uh, very effectively and correctly articulated. (laughs) If God is still angry at unrighteousness when will he stop being angry at sin when will he stop being angry about the sin of the non-elect or the sin of people who will never please him when will he stop just leave that right there maybe anybody Wendy I might pick on you or I might not I don't know when will he stop being angry if he's angry, right? If he's still angry about sin. Have you ever heard this answer? Do you ever heard a, well, since we're going out over the air, I won't set them on their ears. But a, a denomination among whom we have friends who have a more uh, approach to Scripture that is more legally constrained. <clears throat> they can't worship without law. They don't know how to live the Christian life without law. When will he stop being angry? If he's still angry, never. What will stop him? What will satisfy his anger? Not the sacrifice of the sinner, right? The sinner's sacrifice is not acceptable, right? So that's not going to satisfy the offended holiness of God. So what will? Well, there is a basis for that to be satisfied. And frankly, it's already been accomplished. It hadn't been applied in all cases yet. But God really dealt with his own righteous anger himself. He provided for his own satisfaction. 
And it involved a, an agreement between the Father and the Son, and don't you know it was accomplished wonderfully. And if you have benefited from that, <laughs> your eternity just got a whole lot better. <clears throat> I've been contemplating an issue here, and I, I guess, sweetie, but I got I'll be frank here. I've been putting it off, and it's not getting the car fixed or the washer fixed. We did get the washer fixed, and then it leaked on the floor yesterday. We think, or it vexed my wife last night, along with some other things. So yesterday was pretty eventful, but we're here. I got my preparation made, done, and uh, so here we are. We understand, from Scripture, we understand tripartite humanity, spirit, soul, and body, 1 Thessalonians 5.23. We understand, uh, we probably know more about it from Scripture than we understand. But according to Marvin Vincent, it is undeniable, it is an incontrovertible reality based on Scripture. That man is tripartite. Human nature is tripartite. I don't care what some of the theologians have said. I don't care that a famous and storied theologian from Dallas Theological Seminary, before he went to be with the Lord, apparently moderated his view and said it's unarguable that the spirit and soul are, you know, sort of dance in the same space. Basically, reverting to a dichotomous position, he knows better now. Um, <clears throat> glossed over the Hebrews 4 passage, glossed over for my money, glossed over... 1 Thessalonians 5.23, where you have an article that applies to spirit, an article with uh, soul, and an article with body. And you have to ask why they're there. They are not precisely interchangeable, spirit and soul. Nor are spirit and body, nor are soul and body. And because we understand, or we, we know, because of what we know about tripartite humanity, um... We understand that the soul doesn't always, not yet regenerated, we understand that it vexes us from time to time. And it takes some discipline, some spiritual discipline, to keep it under control. And we've said in various ways, various ones of us have said to varying degrees, <coughs> Scripture does not teach to kick the soul to the curb. You cannot excise the soul from the human nature. You will lose your humanity. You need your soul, your tripartite humanity. So learn to discipline your soul. The sin nature batters the soul. Now what are we talking about the soul? I'm going to simplify it. This is a little bit of an oversimplification, but it is broadly instructive. The soul is your emotional complex also involves your appetites, your desires presenting as, uh, what, thoughts and provoking, what, tastes, broadly considered desires, your appetites. What do you like? What do your feelings and your sensibilities... <laughs> What would you like to be drinking right now? More coffee, more water, 7-Up, uh, ginger ale if, for me. 
would you like to be, what would you like for dinner? Most of those things, it's easy to contemplate within the, within the context of the appetites that belong to your, your physical body. Your soul animates your body, gives it movement, gives it motion. It's immaterial. So is your spirit. Be wonderfully easy to say the spirit and the soul are pretty much same thing. No, they're not. Be easy to say that. You'd be wrong. Be easy to be wrong. Um, And as Marvin Vincent, a Greek grammarian, says, we know more about it than we understand, probably. And so, acknowledge early, soul and spirit are different. They have differing effects on you, on your person. Um understand what the influence is of the soul upon the body. Understand what the influence of your emotions are, influence of your emotions are, I suppose, collective noun, um, on your behavior. Now, if you would be spiritual, you would have your regenerated spirit disposed willingly to the governance, to the control of God the Spirit, so that you can behave in a manner that is spiritual. He that is spiritual. Paul says at least once, I think twice, and then goes on to describe the person that is behaving in a manner that's spiritual. We've Numerous ones of us have taught about that. You've been well taught here. It is essential if you will live the Christian life as Kevin alluded to, This morning, numerous times, you will be spiritual. If you cannot be spiritual, do not expect to enjoy the Christian life. Why, right here, you've been dancing in that arena uh, and will continue, right? I mean, you're not done with your class on spiritual life. And you've got a book, a booklet that says what? The Christian life or the spiritual life? What's the title of that? The spiritual life. We, we believe it. Scripture teaches about it. Okay. <clears throat> so what about the apostles? What about the big shots of Scripture? What about the main guys? What about the spiritual giants? Did they use that word when you were, that term when you were growing up? Spiritual giant? SG. Oh, he's a spiritual giant. Most people that we've described or heard talked about spiritual giants weren't spiritual giants. I don't think anyway. But... How about Paul? Spiritual giant? Well, I hope to shout. I mean, Paul, after all. I mean, John, uh, James, Jude. One book of scripture, but spiritual giant. Always spiritual. Was Paul always spiritual? Do you think? Brittany, what do you think? What, oh, Brittany's <laughs> stuck her neck out. Someone get with her and, and <laughs> you don't think Paul was spiritual? Well, Paul apparently wrestled with carnality. Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 7, Romans chapter 7 particularly. Right? So Paul had his, had his problems with carnality. We know enough about Peter's life. Oh, well, we, yeah, that was before the cross, and so we're going to let him slide, but not Paul. What about Peter afterwards? What about um, 
Didn't they oppose each other? I mean, didn't they have differing views and one of them opposed the other one to the face? They're both spiritual. They disagreed, but they're both spiritual. Must have been. I mean, they had to have been, right? Well, biblical apologetics and the New Testament grace believer. Brilliant polemic or fact-based conviction, convincing. I've been thinking about, and I just got to get off my posterior and get cracking. It's going to be an undertaking. I guess I've started. Um, There are a number of words in Scripture that present challenge to us within this context of spirit and soul and which one is in the center of the lane. What's going on here? What's going on here? Jesus has a human spirit, so he has emotions. And by the way, still has emotion. Still has a human spirit, which is not deified. It's glorified. So he has emotion. And emotion affects his one. His feet, he feels Paul wants to, Philippians 3, experience the fellowship of the suffering of Christ. And that word suffering is a word that you cannot really appreciate if you don't understand the human soul. Pain, suffering. If you don't understand human emotion, don't expect to wrap your head around suffering. In consideration of the Apostle Paul's prominence in the New Testament record, his example is worth evaluating. This is an introductory paragraph. I'm going to read it. His example is worth evaluating for what we might learn from it, from his example. Four times he says, imitate me. A fifth time he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Well, let's look. Let's see. Is his example worth imitating? What's, what, are we, what is he asking us to imitate? What we might learn from it both positively as well as negatively. My thesis this morning is a provocative one and admittedly contemplates a minority view. Are you okay with that? Do you have any minority views that you champion from Scripture? Scott, we'll pick on you. Something you believe from Scripture that you know among Christianity broadly is is a minority view. Do you think of one? People who think that we are supposed to be implementing the kingdom of God here on earth. Okay. How about social justice? Yeah, good one. Right? Don't even. Don? The rapture. The rapture is a substantially minority view. Even though it's been reinvigorated with recent teaching and it kind of goes, you know, follows a roller coaster. But social justice. Ooh, we're here to. You didn't say social justice this morning, but you used enough. I almost thought you were going to. Um, But the preacher talked about that this morning. Social justice. We're supposed to be Christians. You know, we're we're supposed to be changing the world. You world changers. We we associate with it. Remember that? World changers. Remember the conferences that we went to with a Christian school curriculum? (laughs) You know who's a world changer? It's Lord Jesus Christ. Um, 
reason he's going to take you out of here is because you're not here to change the world. Not, not, not really technically. Um, <clears throat> it's a minority view. Provocative. Though I am not alone as <laughs> the old Hebrew prof. Brother Don and others have suggested. I'm not alone in this. So I'm not going to stand anybody on their ear here. You've heard some of this before, and I'm going to, what I'm going to do today will be articulated against the backdrop of what Brother Don Hewitt has done in the adult Sunday school class for the last two weeks. And I've really appreciated that. As a matter of fact, I got on Facebook last week while he was preaching. Or while he was teaching, I said, ooh, 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 and I said, tune in. I mean, this is, wow. Not, not everybody likes that. Nobody pushed back on the thing I, I, I posted about your, if you're trying to conduct an agapao love relationship with a world system, you're bound for some frustration. Joyce, did I get that reasonably, I mean, that was reasonably close to what I said, right? Because you responded, you put a thumbs up or something on that. Preacher said that last week. That's dead bang, boom, right? Boy, they didn't like what I they didn't like what Don preached last week in the Sunday school class. Do you remember what it was? How many of you were here? And by the way, if you don't have his notes, you should get them. My thesis is provocative. I'm not alone, as Brother Don and others have suggested. I believe there's enough evidence from Luke's narrative and Acts to profit from Paul's example as he sought to. Imitate Christ. Now, goes without saying, I hope, that we have in view Paul's example both with respect to what to do and what not to do. Is that okay? Is that okay to contemplate that Paul may not, in all cases, have been. <sighs> pristine, can I use that word, in his, Paul's emotions may have leaked into his behavior more than he even thought, more than he knew. Is it okay to, for us to let Paul grow up spiritually? Is it okay for us to benefit from his example since he invites us to at least four times? Now, I'm not arguing with Scripture here, but I do think, and I will tell you, I've called it peeling the onion. The more I peel the onion, I will have to tell you I was stunned. How about you? Were you a little bit, uh, <laughs> were you a little bit, were you surprised? Yeah. I, gave him, I gave Troy a little exercise. Went Thursday night? Was it Thursday night? Okay. Troy and Brittany were over and we, they're on a, they're on a kind of a, an academic track, and um, <clears throat> did you text us that night? Later that night, or was it the next day? I think it was that. Was it? It was that. It was that night. You guys should have been in bed going to sleep because you have to get up early. Troy's working. <clears throat> I was stunned, Don, and I've talked to you. Pastor, we're going we're gonna to talk about a word here that you and I have talked about, that Courtney is. I hope Courtney is able to tune in. Okay, let's get into this. Let's ask the Lord to attend our, uh, our efforts here. And uh, I've, I've, I've probably agonized about this more than I should have. But uh, we'll, we'll trust the Lord to make this 
a very profitable time. Father God, thank you for your goodness and your grace. We desire that um, the concepts that are here, the truth that's here, might be clearly communicated, clearly caught, articulated, and grasped. And um, you please yourself, if you would, with, with our efforts. Please. Amen. Okay. <clears throat> now, I've given you, a, I'm, I'm trying to get better at doing outlines. I don't like to do outlines. It's not that I can't. I'm just not that crazy about doing them. Um, but I am going to improve. I've given you something of an outline here, and I've really broken it down into three points. And the reason I've done it this way is I, this is something, and I've given you space here. This is something around which to hang your observations the man, Paul, and I've made some observations here. He's unquestionably qualified. He's chosen by God, Acts chapter 9, and I will read from it briefly. Um, this is the Lord to Ananias. Ananias says, Lord, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, do you know who this is? You're asking me to go see. This is Paul. I mean, he wears six guns on each hip, and he fires from the hip. He doesn't wait for, he, he takes no prisoners. And the Lord says, no, go thy way. For he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear the name, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings, and we know he did, and the children of Israel. Now, from your study of Scripture, we understand that Paul is actually the apostle to the Gentiles, but he's supposed to bear. He's supposed to bear the name of Christ to the children of Israel. Okay, so there's at least some of that that he's going to be involved in. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. May I ask you a question? Did the Lord keep his word? Did he? Joe's nodding his head. What are you thinking? Paul probably got his head chopped off, right? And he, I mean, that's probably how he was executed. And he did suffer. So the Lord kept his word to Paul. Sustained him in the process. But the Lord kept his word to him. Um, he's impeccably credentialed, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. You can read that. It's Paul's testimony of his uh, pedigree, his stock. We know he was in overwhelming likelihood. He was a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin. He was studied, what, at the feet of Gamaliel? Um, read it in Philippians chapter 3. He's impeccably credentialed, and I've said... Point B, who better to take the New Testament evangel than the world, uh, to the world than the steward of the dispensation of the grace from God? And that designation comes from Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 6. Paul's a steward of the dispensation of the grace from God, in which, under which house rules we live. <coughs> What was his method? Now, Don, I may be a little bit at variance with you here. We're going to go to Acts 13, verses 16 through 52. I like the way you, what you did with that. But I'm going to make a suggestion that I don't think you're going to vigorously oppose. I think we really see as much about his method in Acts chapter 17, verse 2. And we're going to go through Acts, through Acts chapter 17. And we're going to look briefly at his discourse on... Eh, called a dialogue, I mean a little bit dialogic in, in certain parts, but a, a, a discourse that many, and Don has noted this, many call his brilliant 
message. I, I just, I'm ambivalent about that. Brilliant message. It's a brilliant discourse on its face. What he does is well done. But I don't know. I think we have reason to take another view of Acts 17. Anyway, we're going to look at what he seemed willing to do at the outset of his ministry. Acts 13, 16 through 52. And I'm going to kind of shotgun that a little bit. And then we're going to look at Acts 17. And from 17... We're going to look at some terms. If you flip over the page on the back of that first page, I've given you a list of terms. And I'll tell you ahead of time. We're not going to be able to look at all of them. But I will promise you they are all germane. They are relevant to this subject. And I have a thesis, and I'll tell you up front what I think it is. I mean, what the thesis is. I'll tell you up front. What I believe. Um, Let me get to something over here. Let me check another page of notes. I believe that there is ample evidence to conclude, and we'll see it in Acts chapter 17, that Paul developed an emotional polemic. Michael, I'm going to pick on you, because you're a student. You're you're a sharp guy. Uh, Sing it out loud and clear. What's a polemic? And you just, you don't have to be too detailed. What You know what a polemic is. Do you? Ask someone else. Who wants to answer that? Jalen. You know what a polemic is? She doesn't know. She will soon. How about Jalen's mom? I'm not trying to pick on anybody. Wendy, are you giving him the answer to the quiz? <laughs> <laughs> What's a polemic? Who wants to take a crack at that? I want to tell you, it's not... Um, Scott, what do you think? What's, what is a polemic? That's not the sentence you used. You said oh. it earlier. I wouldn't pay close enough attention to get the context. Essentially, it's just a statement of a case. <laughs> well... If you look at the etymology of the word, it's, it's going to be more than that. A polemic is a sharply targeted argument. When, when, if you are accused of being polemic, um, most people will not take that to mean you're gentle with your discourse. Polemic typically is, I mean, if you look at a dictionary definition of it, it's probably going to say early on, harsh, sharply worded. So, and and frankly, you've got a Greek word, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 34, um, 
take this out of context, quench the violence of fire, escape the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, wax valiant in fight. There is a Greek word that contributes to the etymology of our English word polemic. And it's a word that is often translated fight or war. I believe Paul framed a brilliant polemic in dealing with the Jews. I believe he was brilliant in what he did. Here's what astounded me. Courtney started dealing with a word dialogizomai a couple weeks ago, and he actually kind of cracked the surface, cracked the door to it in the conference. And Courtney's done a very good job. I hope he's listening. Courtney's conclusion about dialogizomai was it's not really a, a complimentary term in Scripture. I'll tell you what I think is, I, I, I think we'd be better served to say, if you study that word, dialogizomai, in Scripture, it is a word that very often, by context, really makes you pause and ask, do I want this to characterize my, my manner of speech? There's another word very similar to it, dialogomai. And that's what we're going to look at today. It occurs in Acts chapter 17. It occurs 13. 13 times in the New Testament. Ten of which are in Acts. And of those 13 times, I believe one of them is in Hebrews. So you've got, I think Luke influenced the language in Hebrews. So here's my point. <clears throat> it occurs numerous times in the book of Acts. And who's the one dialegomying? Who's the one Reasoning, it's sometimes translated reason, as you found. But how else is it translated, Troy? Uh, dispute. It is overwhelmingly translated dispute. Now, why are we interested in this word and Paul's, the narrative that Luke writes in Acts about Paul's ministry? Because this is what he did in the synagogue with the Jews. This was his manner. Let's look at Acts chapter 17. Acts 17. And I've reproduced that for you uh, in your notes. So, we're going to end up in 1 Peter 3. Um, Kevin read, what, almost the whole chapter. <laughs> we'll end up in 1 Peter 10 through 15. And, and my question really is this. <clears throat> my concern is this. Is there a skilled manner of articulating your case which makes the believer susceptible to emotional, what? Emotional appeal. I don't think what Paul did was necessarily wrong. I think it was highly skilled. 
But I, I have to ask the question overwhelmingly, as many times as this word is used, it overwhelmingly characterizes his going into the synagogue. When he got to twice in 13, he and Barnabas said, Ah, you guys are shake. You guys are not worthy of salvation. Henceforth, we go to the Gentiles. Know what happened? Very next stop, he went to the synagogue and disputed with the Jews. Acts 18. Angry, Paul says, I'm sick of you guys. Henceforth, I'm going to the Gentiles. Turned right around and went into the synagogue and started disputing again with the Jews. Now, to be sure, they had some things to correct. They had some things to correct about their manner. I mean, about their belief. Right? But was Paul the guy to do it? And should it have been done in the manner in which he did it? And Don made the point from Acts chapter 17. Let's go there. That Paul may not have done such a good job in preaching on Mars Hill. Now, let's read through Acts 17. Um, and what I have done, I think in your what I have done in your notes is, and I'll read this from I've got it reproduced here. I've actually highlighted. I've, I've emboldened some terms in Acts 17. And where I have emboldened them, if you will look back on that page of, on the page that's got the terms in it, you will find from King James, from the King James, you will find the Greek term. We're going to make some comments. Okay, so let's start. Acts 17.1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis, or Amphipolis, (laughs) and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a... Synagogue, how convenient, of the Jews. And Paul, now Don, I don't think you would object to this, as was his manner. Don made a point in his notes, and you need to get those notes. He started out in Acts chapter 13. As a matter of fact, let's go there first. Acts chapter 13, hold your finger in, hold your finger in, um, Acts 17, or find a way to get back to it. Acts, 6, Acts 13. And we'll pick this up at about 16, verse 16. Okay. This is early on. Then Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand. Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand and said, Men of Israel and ye that fear God. So he's talking to a Jewish audience substantially. It may be mixed. And Don made, made mention of the Sebamai word for religious, there were certain devout Gentiles. They were religious. Now, the word, the, the word doesn't necessarily mean they were saved. But in some cases, that word does refer to saved people. Um, Paul stood up, beckoned with his hand, 
Verse 17, the God of this people of Israel chose our fathers. He's talking to Jews, and he gives the history. Um, let's, let's go on down here. Talks about David their king in 22, of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. So he talks about Jesus. Um, and eventually he's going to talk about sin, but God, here, verse 29, and when they had filled all that was, fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. So you've got Jesus dying for sin, God raised, but God raised him from the dead, verse 30, and he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. And we declare unto you glad tidings. How that the promise which was made unto the fathers, you've still got a Jewish context. You've got salvation in a Jewish context. But he's talking to, I mean, this is openly available. God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second Psalm. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now notice, he's talking about resurrection and something happens. Uh, is it here or is it later? Verse 43. Let's see. And when the, 42. And when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them, that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. So they're going to observe the Sabbath. They're coming back into this Jewish context, but they are religious Gentiles, and they like this. Now, when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Now, I'm going to draw attention to that word persuade. What do you do? What do you, what what behavior to you, do you use to persuade people to do what you want them to do? Who can I pick on? Kevin? <laughs> Are there things that you need to persuade Joy to do Joyce to do or that you know how to persuade her to do? I mean, huh? Sweet talk. Sweet talk. Is that okay? <laughs> Sweet talking guy. Is that okay, Joyce? Does he get? Does he? Is he able to persuade you to do stuff that way? Some things, not everything. Sometimes, it's okay to use persuasive appeal. About this word, if you look over at the words, the list of terms that I gave you about this term. I believe you can observe, you will observe from the use of this term in Scripture. It is a substantially emotional appeal. It is substantially an emotional appeal. Now, am I saying it's wrong? No. Is it okay to use emotional appeal? I, I don't know why we would say from Scripture it's wrong. But it's fascinating to me how often this term occurs 
where there isn't really a whole lot of explicit scripture involved and where the opinion seems to be dangerously varied. This is the term, and I've given you Strong's number for it. This is the term if you, want, if you follow it. When Paul was cautioned from going to Rome, he finally said, stop putting pressure on me. I'm going. And the scriptural response, or the, what was consequent to that, that Luke writes is, when he would not be persuaded. Now I'm going to ask you a question. The guy that said, don't go to Rome, I see you bound like this, Paul says I'm going to Rome. Who was right? It's entirely possible that the warning was supposed to be given, and he was to go anyway. The Lord promised him he would suffer, right? I, I'm, I'm going to alert you to something here, and my time is not my friend. The clock is not my friend today. If you look, and I've given you the ability to do it, if you look at the use of this term in Scripture, pay attention to the conduct, the attitude, the behavior, the general context of the people that are being persuaded. What is the means being used to persuade? Now, I'll tell you something else about this word. If you look at your notes, the word is pytho, and it means persuade. With a negative particle in front of it, what would it mean? Not persuaded? You know how it's most often translated? When you negate this term as a verb, it's translated disobey. Well, wait a minute. Positively persuade, negatively disobey. Turn to John 3, verse 36. John 3, 36. Now, there's a lot here and more than I can get through, but <clears throat> this word is important for a number of reasons, not the least of which is its relationship to the term believe. If you, Lynn, if I asked you, Carl's making a persuasive argument to you and you don't accept it. You don't believe him or you're just not persuaded. You, you see how they might kind of, you know, you might have to consider both things. Listen, um, well, you know, I listened to the evidence. I worked in the courts for a while. I listened to the evidence and it just, it, it just, you know, it just didn't, you know what the lawyers use? You know what the court, the term, the, the, the language the court used? Didn't meet the standard of proof. Do you realize that that is the way faith is being sold today, communicated? These two terms are not interchangeable. It is not a matter of piling up enough evidence so that you become fully persuaded. Uh, Agrippa is going to say to him, and I think it's in what, 26, Acts 26, and I've given it to you, and you know, oh, Paul, almost thou persuadest me to become a Christian. You were not 
technically speaking, you were not persuaded to believe the gospel. You're right. The lights went on. Oh, anybody can see that. Well, you can if you don't have blinders on. You can if the lights are on. Guess who's working behind the scenes? The Lord God. Apologetics. Let us dismiss the notion that we must pile up objective evidence as sound as it is, as sound as it may be, so that it will eventually meet the standard of proof. Paul kept going into the synagogue. He kept going in with an emotional appeal. He kept going in with this sharp, brilliant, emotional polemic. You know what it did? Some of the Gentiles believed. Some of the Gentiles, in fact, were persuaded. Does emotional persuasion have a value? I'm not going to tell you it doesn't. But I am going to tell you this. Be very, very careful. You talked about noise today. You talked about tranquility. We are headed, I think, for a time when, I think, unprecedented. I didn't expect it to be in my lifetime. I think Americans are going to suffer persecution they did not count on. And we're going to have to decide whether we're going to go to 1 Peter 3 here in a minute. We're going to have to decide what it is upon which we base our behavior and our deportment. I wanted to, I wanted to look at Acts 17. I'm running out of time, but uh, let's go there. Here, let me finish with Pytho. Pytho is unquestionably the word that... I Stay in John 3.36. I'll tell you why here. Pytho, persuade. A Pytho is... The related verb with an alpha privative. Okay? Look at John 3.36, and this will, this will force you to, to do some work. Let's <coughs> read it in the King James. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. This is John 3. We know what this is about. It's about life eternal. He that believeth on the Son... The term for believe here is pistuo. It's the overwhelmingly the common term in Scripture for uh, believe. The, the noun form is frequently translated faith or belief. But this is a believe verb. Okay, <clears throat> now do this. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. Eternal life. He that believeth not, well, you can see this, they're in apposition. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath articular, the wrath of God, abideth over him like the sword of Damocles. It's the term meno. Belongs there. It's appropriate that the wrath, God is going to dispense wrath 
for a particular targeted reason, because of this sin of unbelief. Now wait. Unbelief? He that believeth, pistuo, has life eternal. He that doesn't believe, apistuo, it's not apistuo. It's not pistuo with a negative particle. It's not, it's not pistuo negated. It's a different word. He that is not persuaded. It's this persuade term. And you know what the implication of it is? He that stubbornly refuses to be persuaded by the truth. It's this kind of unbelief. It's a stubborn unbelief. It's an unwillingness to be persuaded. So as you're looking through here, and as you contemplate the term pytho, and what the nature of this persuasion might be, also look at the apytheo, and I've given you some references for that. <coughs> okay. Go back to 17, and I'll try to make some points here quickly. Acts 17. Chapter 17, verse 2, as we said, And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto the synagogue three Sabbath days and reasoned? Well, maybe. The lexicons overwhelmingly translate this disputed. He disputed with them out of the scriptures. So he went to scripture, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. Nothing wrong with that so far. I don't have a problem with that. He's right. And some of them believed, or shall I say, some were persuaded. So whatever the weight of his argument was, it was effective. And consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout, or we should say religious Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. But look at verse 5. But the Jews which believed not, and that is the apitheo word, they stubbornly refused to be persuaded by the truth, concerning Christ, by the way, as you study this, they refused to accept the messianic evidences concerning Christ. Moved with envy. Now, Don, you and I talked about this a little bit. Kevin, just take a crack at it. What's the word translated envy there? Well, you got your interlinear open. You know what the word translated envy is? Zeal. Zeal is a work of the flesh. The Jews who refused to be persuaded concerning the truth were moved not with overwhelming willingness to believe the truth concerning Christ. No, they are moved with a competitive zeal. And what's the response? They took unto them certain lewd fellows. Don had fun with this phrase of the baser sort, gathered a company and said, all the, the city in an uproar. Why? Jesus is pre or Paul's preaching Christ to the nation of Israel. I'm not sure he was. I'm not sure he was. I am more inclined to think as I study this and as I look down through it and all the references to it that he is haranguing them. And when he gets before Felix, his appeal to Felix is, Felix, I, why am I being persecuted this way? Listen, look at my credentials. I'm a good Jew. They, of all people, should be accepting this testimony. I'm a good Jew. 
Look at my pedigree. And Felix says, wow. Go and I'll get back to you and give you my resolution later. Um, there are a bunch of things that happen here and you need to look at them. They're interesting. Don did a very good job with this. I want to go down to... Verse 12, therefore many of them believed, pistuo, there, obviously a, a spirit belief, honorable women which were Greeks and of men not a few, but then the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge of the word of God was preached of Paul at Berea. They came thither, the Jews from Thessalonica, they came and did what? They stirred up. Don did a very good job of this. This word for stirred up is a word which means physically shaken. It's a term that's used in Matthew 24 talking about the heavens shaking. Right? These are the Jews. These are the Jews that Paul is what? Reasoning with? These are the Jews against whom Paul is, I think, targeting a sharp polemic. They stirred up the people. And they that conducted Paul brought him into Athens. So he's, he's, he's really, he's not, they're not saying, to him, hey, Paul, listen, where do you think we ought to go? No, they took him and took him to Athens. They commandeered him and took him to Athens ostensibly to save his life. Now look at Acts 17, 16. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred. And this is a term which only occurs four times. Wait, four times or two times? This is a term that occurs twice. It occurs, <laughs> good for Don. It's the Oxus term that occurs. Anyway, it's a, it's a term that is, look over at your, well, it's a, look over at your uh, word list. Thirteen five. Yeah, it's 1 Corinthians 13.5 is the only other place that this occurs. 1 Corinthians 13.5. And 1 Corinthians 13.5 is characterizing agapao love as a fruit of the Spirit that is not easily provoked. The term provoked is this term stirred. Paul's teeth were on edge. Why? His teeth are on edge because of what? The idolatry in Athens? His spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idols. Therefore, disputed again, disputed he in the synagogue. Tell you what I'm going to do. I've been, I've been idle too long. I'm not going to wait for these guys that brought me here. I'm going to go straight back to the synagogue and start haranguing the Jews again. I hope I'm, I don't mean to be I don't mean to be flippant about it, but that's exactly what he did. Now, I'm going to suspend Acts. There's a lot of stuff here to the unknown God. Don did a wonderful job, wonderful job with this. Um, they are apparently very superstitious regarding demons, and so they put up they put up a, a placard. To the unknown, unknowable, God, just in case there is someone that we've missed in this polytheistic sweep here. Just in case. And he, he humiliates them. But Don's point, I think, and I mean as he articulated it, Don's point was this. By the time Paul is done, 
in Athens. Where did he go from Athens? If you're in Don Sunday School class and if you understand, I mean, if you follow the narrative, he went, went to Corinth. And if you read his writing to Corinth, by the time he gets there, you think to himself, what has happened to this guy? His tail is between his legs. Now, is there anybody that doesn't understand that? You two guys are constantly telling me that I'm using... You know, what I'm, you know what having your tail between your legs means? You're a whipped... You've got a dog. It's a whipped pup. You just got a smackdown. He came from Athens. I, I, I think he's unprepared for, this, for the discourse in Athens. He is forced to make the discourse by an occasion that's impromptu. Look at Don's notes. They're wonderful. I could have reproduced them here. I didn't. But... He makes a brilliant argument. Who better, as I've said, who better to shout the Jews down than Paul? That's not our job. That's not apologetics. That's not defense of the faith. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. And we could start in verse 10. We probably don't need to. But people, we're going to have... It doesn't matter. Your politics, your position on the recent... Uh, what do I want to say? Healthcare debacle? Crisis? Trinette, are you shaking your head? <laughs> Rolling your eyes. <laughs> you, you have a little something to do with. Uh, I mean, your work. There's a, there's a lot that people don't know. Yeah, so okay. It's, it's, All right. And, and, and we probably get different views in this room. But you know what? I'm looking at all of you, and I, I'm reasonably confident that everybody's face I'm seeing here um, is one thing that unites us. There's an exit strategy. We're not going to have to leave the airport and have people killed at the gate with you know, improvise explosive devices. We're going to be out of here. It's going to be exciting. We're going to be all on the same ride. Right? <clears throat> First Peter 3. Can you shout down the opposition? Can you muster an argument? Troy, you and I have talked about this. Can you pile up just as recently as Thursday night? Can you pile up He's got six arguments I need. How many do I need? Seven or do I need ten? Do I need eight? Well, some of his are weak, and I think one of mine will trump two of his. So wait, do the math. Um, I probably should get one more. Verse Peter 3. I'll start with verse 10, and um, we'll read down through 15. <clears throat> For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. It's hard to know. It's hard to know where to pick this up to give it context. But let him eschew evil 
and do good. Let him seek peace and and sue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? That's Agathos good. And if you, well, you know who will harm you if you follow that which is Agathos good? Bad guys will. It's, a, it's, it's pretty much a done deal that you will suffer persecution if you live righteously. You've heard that before, and that's, I mean, if you're not accepting it, what did we expect would happen? But if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Then verse 15, but set apart, now there's a little bit of a, there's some interpretive latitude here. I think this really is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the God. But, But sanctify Lord, the one who is a quality of Lord, and I think your article uh, goes with God, Theos. I'm not looking at the, the Greek text here, but set him apart in your hearts. I think it's the Lord Jesus, the second person of deity. And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope. This is articular, so you have to ask yourself, what specific hope is in view here? Uh, you've been well taught about hope. Hope issues from a specific promise to you. What do you think the hope is? Kevin, just throw something out. What do you think the hope is here? Fair to ask you that question? That asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you and do it with meekness. And I would prefer to say, I don't know, phobos is fear, but I think this is a reverential fear. And who are you fearing? You're fearing the Lord, the one who is master. And in a certain context, he is a despotic master. He's a righteous despot. But he is your master if you're the servant, if you're the doulos. Are you, Don, what do you think the hope is here? I, 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 Kevin, do you have any, do you have any? This has got to be the soon appearing of what are we looking for next? We're looking for the soon appearing. We're expecting to welcome the soon appearing. Listen. <laughs> Got to be the soon appearing of the great God, even our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what I'm that's what I'm looking for. That's the hope that I have that helps me face tomorrow. First John three two, absolutely. Titus chapter two. Do I have to win the argument? No. Am I supposed to be ready? Do I need to be ready for the one who asks me? A word, it's actually logos here. What's the word? What is the inform, uh, the, the informing word that will explain, that will, that will give assurance for the hope that's within me? Yeah, I can tell you that. I can tell you that. 
The hope that's within me is the soon appearing of Jesus Christ to remedy this. It's my exit strategy. There's a lot there. There's a lot for additional study. Um, this is actually, there's so many layers of the onion, so to speak, that this is worth probably, I mean, if you're going to preach it adequately or comprehensively, it would take probably at least two messages, maybe three. But here's what we can come away with. You have hope because you are ones, and Peter is the one who says he's given us great and precious promises that directly influence the way we live. Hope produces conviction in the yet unfulfilled, all you're waiting on is time. From God's point of view, it's a done deal. Can you reckon it to be a done deal? And act today as if it's already reality? As if it's experience or reality? That's faith. And we've talked about that numerous times.